Welcome to the 58th episode of the New Ventures Podcast. I'm your host, Sanjoy Saniel, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Along with my co-host, Professor Jaydeep Prabhu, I host this podcast series to help explore the links between climate change and food security. Hello, everyone. My name is Jaydeep Prabhu. I am a professor of marketing at Cambridge Judge Business School. My area of research is innovation, more specifically frugal innovation, how companies and startups can do more and better with less. Delighted to be doing this podcast with Sanjay. Our guest for today is Annab Sengupta. Annab is a graduate from the Judge Business School in Cambridge and has spent his entire career working in the food industry. In our series on climate change and food security, our conversation today will be on tuna, which of course all of us who love our sushi know all about. Welcome Arnab. Thank you. Hi everybody, I'm Arnab. I have been a student of Judge Business School and Jedi in particular about 20 years back. My career has been in food processing, commodity trading and focused with seafood, especially tuna that we've been working in markets of Latin America, Middle East and Asia. Thank you for inviting me for this podcast where we talk of this important issue of climate change and its food and other commodities as well. Pleasure to be talking to you as a former student of mine from Cambridge Judge Business School. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your career? Uh, well, Jadeep, I came to judge with a few years of experience. I was already a commodity trader after graduating from the Indian so Foreign Trade in India. And I was working in a company in Thailand where I started learning coffee trading. And then I was in my uh, still under a trainee and internship when I went to the canned foods and processed food table. Luckily or unluckily for me at that point of time, six months into that table, my manager resigned and I got the responsibility of managing the table of processed food for this company in Bangkok. And that's where I took in these products into Middle East and Latin America. And after that, being in Bangkok during those days, I applied to judge and got admitted for the batch of 2002-2003. While a judge... I was placed with two companies. One was Unilever in India. That came from presentation I had done in front of a board member of Unilever while in judge in one of the projects we were doing. As the other one was from a food company called Americana in uh, Dubai. For some reason, the Americana offer came to me in the morning and the Unilever offer came to me in the afternoon. Uh, studying in judge, did have an impact on impact financially on me. So I thought I would go and work in Dubai for a couple of years and then go back to the uh, offers that were there in India or some other country. Well, in Americana, they were just starting up. They had a canned food factory that they had started and they wanted to use, while this um, factory was ramping up, use the uh, distribution channels that they had set up to work with other products. So that gave me a golden opportunity to work independently 
in this company for businesses that we call the co-packed businesses, out of which the majority was canned tuna. That's how the career has been started taking place. I went and worked with John West Tuna in Paris for a couple of years. And then now I'm back in Thailand working with a company called JMB, which takes care of supporting supermarket chains in buying better their groceries and processed commodities from Southeast Asia and India. So Anab, I'm going to ask you a quiz question. How many commodities have you touched in your career? Well, started with coffee, then I did rice. Then I have been with seafood. Seafood would be, you know, shrimps and other white frozen fish, tuna. That's many commodity. Uh, then a bit of fruits, which would be mostly pineapple. That would do in both in fresh as well as canned things. So, yeah. So about six or seven of them that I worked with. That's really fascinating, Arnab. I mean, such a range of foods. But I'm particularly interested in the tuna. How does tuna get to supermarkets and restaurants? That's a long story, Jedi. So basically, the tuna that you get in the restaurants or supermarket can be divided into two streams. One would be the fresh tuna that we use for just cooking our daily meals or for sushi. And the other popular thing is the canned tuna. So canned tuna again gets divided into two parts, one for human consumption, the other for pet food consumption. But they all come together from the same origin. So tuna really has its catching fields. Now, it's a pelagic fish. That means it is caught in deep sea waters. It is caught around between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn across oceans. So there is a good catching field called the Western Pacific. These are the islands of Kiribati, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, that area. Uh, that's where about 47% of our tuna is caught. Another 20% tuna of the Pacific Ocean is caught near Ecuador. Some tuna is caught around seashells and Maldives. They are called the Indian Ocean catching to tuna belt. And the last bit that is really caught commercially is around Ivory Coast. So these are the areas where the tuna would be caught for coming into your supermarkets. There are tuna in almost all seas. They are caught for your own pleasure and fishing, but not coming to your supermarkets. When tuna is caught, it's basically caught in a couple of methods. The most popular and most efficient method is called the persina catching. So what happens in persina is these are about 800 tons to 1,000 ton boats that can go around. They drop their nets in the sea for about two to three kilometers of circumference and then they just pull it up and anything that is there comes up to it like a purse and then they scoop up the fish and put and they are frozen while in sea immediately in those boats. So this is called the persina fishing. The other type of fishing is called the Poland line and hand catching. So in the Poland line, basically what they do is, and it's very popular in Maldives, a little bit in Indonesia, fishing boats with about 30, 40, 50 people standing next to it with poles and a hook in it. And they catch the fish one by one spits itself into the boat and it's frozen there. People say this is the most sustainable fishing because it is one man, one hook, one fish concept. But for this also, a lot of small sardines, which are caught and brought in as bait, is thrown into the, into the waters to attract tuna. 
So these are the two main things. There are something called the long line fishing also that happens where a long line is dipped and big fish, basically yellowfin. There are a couple of species of tuna, which we can talk about if you're interested, that are caught this way. This is the basic structure of it. Once the fish is caught, it takes a few days to a couple of weeks for this fish to be caught. They're immediately frozen and then they're dropped into the port. Some of the species which goes for commercial canning, both for human and pet food, are sent by boats to Bangkok or to Ecuador or to seashells where these factories or Indonesia where these factories are there to convert it. It's a very human intensive work of cleaning up the fish and putting in a can. The other part of the fish is frozen. These fish which comes to your supermarket for sushi or for cooking has to be frozen at a much lower temperature. And then these are shipped directly either in containers or in air freight, depending upon what you require in your consumption. Of course, for the sushi fish, you know, we all know in Japan, there are these auctions where a fish can sell for $100,000 to $250,000. And those are very special fish and they're really rewarded for that quality and the aspects it has. This is fascinating, obviously. The, I'll check, uh, check you up on the offer of understanding the various species of tuna. You mentioned one species, the yellowfin species. Are the geographical areas uh, this tuna is caught? Obviously, I suppose different species are caught, right? Can you give us a picture of that? Yes. So tunas go around school. So basically, you will have a certain species traveling together. And also tuna do eat the other species of fish as well as planktons. So basically, the story of fish, the most premium tuna is called the bluefin tuna. And then there's something called the albacore, which is often called the chicken of the sea. So the canning process of tuna started, the history talks about uh, that uh, salmon, for some reason, was not being caught in the western coast of USA. And in the early 1900, they caught this tuna because there was uh, no salmon those couple of years called albacore tuna. They packed it. It tasted like chicken. So it's called the chicken of the sea. And that's how the tuna became popular. And then World War Wars came in both one and two, which made tuna a very convenient product of high protein to be carried into the war. Then there is one called the big eye, which is a bit of a overfished fish at the moment. The last one is skipjack. Uh, skipjack is a much smaller fish. Yellowfin and big eye are usually 10, 20 kilo fishes. Skipjacks are about two to three kilo fishes. And these are the products that are most popular and mostly caught and commercially used for canning industry. Yellowfin tuna is it's a bluefin, albacore, yellowfin. That's the, and then the skipjack that I would put in category. So yellowfin tuna is mostly used for sushi. Quite a bit of it also goes for canning. Uh, especially in the European markets. But skipjack dominates the US market, the Japanese canned tuna market, and the Middle East and Australia. So most of the world canned tuna comes about 70% would be, 80% would be skipjack. I mean, this is fascinating. At one point, you know, I, I'm almost salivating or my head is spinning around. You know, obviously we are outsiders to the industry. And I know that in the supply chain of the international food industry is extremely complex, but at the same time efficient. So just help us understand from the moment the tuna is caught and it's a fresh tuna and it goes to the sushi restaurant in US or, or maybe even Cambridge or Japan and canned tuna. I mean, are there different time lags, different supply chains? How does that work? 
Yes, it is. So basically, the sushi tuna is much shorter supply chain and timeline. So you need very big fish. With they are not uh, caught in this whole mass of persina fishing where everything is caught together, brought into frozen things. So these long line boats catch their catch in a couple of days, seven days or fifteen days are back at the port. Even then, over there they are frozen. They come down to negative eighteen degrees. Usually, is taken for making selling it at fresh tuna. So even if the big boats are there, that's catching. They catch it and quickly come to the port. At normal canned tuna, you are okay to do it till negative nine degrees freezing. But what for sushi, you really need when humans are consuming it fresh or raw. They need it to be really frozen to negative eighteen degrees, which you need very special equipments to do that. And then it's shipped out very quickly, sorted out, and then it's shipped or air flown to the destination. While in the canned food segment, they are all collected together. to make the cost down and to make efficiency each of these boats catch about 800 to 1000 tons then they are put into a carrier which is about 4000 to 5000 tons carrier their weight in these ports of kiribati or in uh, micronesia then moving from the carrier it comes to places like bangkok indonesia vietnam uh, because we need a lot of human intervention in cleaning and processing the cans so each of the fish is manually cut inside the bones are taken out then we call it's made a loin so there are these black meat in it which is basically the nervous system of the fish which is cleaned out and then the canning happens so there's this full human intervention that's required to clean the fish so it's a very manual intensive process that takes place we could not mechanize it because each fish has got a different texture each fish has got a different size so even you know mechanically it's very difficult to get an efficient method of cleaning the fish So once clean, this products are put in cans. Then we cover it with oil and then seal the product and ship it out. Again, the shipment from these ports to countries in Europe would take about thirty to forty-five days to come along, and then a couple of months in the warehouse, and then they come to your supermarket. Wow, that's really, really quite complex and very sophisticated, and also a lot of uh, time involved and a lot of processes. Arnab, from what you were describing, it seems a lot of small island countries are involved in the fishing and the processing. Is the tuna is it mainly for export, or is there also some local consumption? And is it mainly for Western or rich country elites, or is it also reaching the plate of poorer local populations? So, Jaydi, while the fishing happens in the EEZ or the economic zones of uh, island nations, unfortunately, not much of processing happens there because it needs a, a lot of energy and it needs a good logistic system, which many of these island nations are not having at this point of time. So, these island nations sell their licenses to fish, so they charge a fee to these boat owners to do fishing in their. EZs. That's the inflow of money that happens in these countries. And well, climate change. When we speak about it, that's impacting these economies over here. The tuna that we catch is then transshipped to countries like Bangkok, which is the biggest processing unit, or Ecuador. It's a place called Malta. These are the two largest processing units. A clustering that has happened, where you can really see the tuna being cleaned and canned. So when a tuna is processed in in a or any processed food is packed, what we do is we cut off oxygen supply. 
And this doesn't allow all the bacteria and the other things to grow in the can, which gives it, it about five, four to five years life. It could be more, but unfortunately, when what we call tin cans are made out of steel and iron dough start rusting after a certain point of time. So people don't give it more than two to three years shelf life to these cans. But again, to take you back to what you had asked, these island nations really do not a lot of canned tuna. They do eat the fresh tuna that comes in and it's in everybody's diet. Like in Maldives, they consume about 77 kilo of tuna per capita per year. But that's a pretty high amount of fish person in Maldives is consuming. Uh, but then uh, canned or the process level, it's very low. Tuna is relatively cheap protein. In many countries, in like in Middle East, Africa, Latin America, where it is compared to meat, a uh, much, much affordable protein. So it's consumed, especially in the canned form in these countries. The fresh form, yes, because of the supply chain, is a much more expensive fish. And that is coming in as a food source into the upper middle class segment only in most of the countries okay so we will get into the core of our podcast but just to recap my head around a few things the canned tuna market is an export oriented industry it uh, does not necessarily help in meeting the local protein needs. The fresh tuna market, on the other hand, does seem to meet the local protein needs of these countries. I thought it was interesting that the small island developing states do not have energy resources coming from the world that I come from. I'm immediately thinking about renewable energy sources. They don't have the energy resources to process tuna. The supply chain is obviously completely global, right? It is the fish is caught at some point, processed in Bangkok and Equator, and then shipped across the world. The other thing that I'm going to take away is that different species have different needs. So I'll pick up the point that you mentioned about the sushi being of a particular species, and that particular species has to be caught in a particular way. So there is that supply chain angle. So those are the important things that I'm taking away from, from this introduction to this very complex industry. Now we're going to move on to the topic of climate change, which our audience really wants to know about. And I'll start by saying that, you know, you and me have talked separately, and I know you've been looking at a few studies that talk about the impact of climate change and food security on tuna industry. What have you seen so far? So basically, people are getting aware about climate change, and it's, there are some studies have started happening. Not much of research has happened yet. Some of the New Zealand universities and Australian universities are doing some work on it. And so they have some idea what's happening, but it's not really conclusive or we cannot confirm this. And I've seen scientific uh, community, unless they really can confirm something, they really don't come up with a statement of this is what will happen or this is what the future looks like. They sort of give you an idea and then, then they shy away from confirming it. So that's the stage that we are in. They end up by telling us that we need to do much more research to come on to the exact pattern, but this is the trend that's happening. Climate change has happened, that's for sure. Whether patterns have changed, El Nino and La Nina affects the tuna species and its catching. And we have been affected by that. And I can see it in my career, the last 20 years, the cycles expanding and changing and how the pattern moves. 
So reflecting on what you've seen, Arnab, to what extent do you see the impact of overfishing and issues like marine pollution? So overfishing has been a big issue for the last 10-15 years and a lot of work has happened. A lot of noise has been also made by NGOs, which has had a positive impact on this. As of now, most of the fish that are used for commercial fishing are on the green box Kyoto protocol structure, which is it is sustainable as of now, the way things are happening. It was not, things have moved in the better field. So what happens is being scientifically oriented and in being top of the food chain, we send out something called the fish aggregating devices in the ocean. So these are devices and now with science and technologies, these are buoys with you know radar and sonar. They attract fish because if you have any floating object, a plankton starts coming around it and the fishes start coming over there. They can calculate the density of the fish and the species that are there around with relative assurance, throw it up to the satellite and the satellite then sends it to the fishing boats and they all can go and capture or collect these fishes over there. So as a community, we have decided that we will not be using this fish aggregating devices to catch fish for a certain period of time every year. In UK, there has been a lot of work happening, a lot of uh, discussions happening against Persina fishing. So this Poland line fishing is something that's there. WWF has got this branch of the business called MSC, Marine Stewardship Council. They have about 14 parameters and they have judged how the fishing happens, what are the bycatches, because when you catch a school of fish, it's obvious. Your nets should be of a certain structure. The catching should be done in a certain way so that you don't affect other marine uh, eco-lives that swim along together. So they do all that and then they certify certain catches as MSC caught fish. So that's becoming a big popular uh, thing to know that, yes, the fish was caught in a certified sustainable manner. So that's something that has helped. And I'm happy to report that even in a tuna conference in Vigo this Thursday, and we were reported that most of the fish was in a good green tone at this point of time on the commercial fishing. Pollution-wise, of course, the marine pollution is there. We have been talking about something called mercury pollution in the news that comes up with tuna often. And I think some research has been done over there because people started questioning that if tuna or seafood has mercury pollution you know it's uh, why is it affecting not affecting the other marine species that each eat tuna or consume tuna like you know the whale or the other the sharks and then new research shows tuna do have mercury but they also have something called selenium and they counteract each other and the selenium in our, the, these bodies which we also need as human beings for enzymes is much higher than the negative impact of tuna uh, of mercury, little bit of mercury that tuna has. So it's a very positive news that I was listening to during this conference that eating tuna is at the end much more beneficial to human health. Uh, marine pollution, because these are very high migratory pelagic fish which goes in deep seas and in high seas that will catch them, not much of coastal pollution affect them. But there are spills that happens and, you know, other things that happen that affect, of course, we see some impact on them at some point of time. Arna, that's, again, very interesting, very rich set of responses. 
from what I could gather, most of these responses are coming from governments or organizations like WWF. What is the response of industry? Who are the companies that are involved? What are the incentives for them to be more responsible rather than to be exploitative or extractive? So there are a couple of high big seafood brands globally, as well as you know some regional brands. And everybody has understood that to be in the long-term player in this industry, you have to get into sustainable fishing methods. Also, what has happened is a lot of these NGOs, along with these governments, have impacted. They have gone and impacted how supermarkets display and what products they, they keep in their stores. And they need these to be sustainable. So that has impacted the supply chain a lot. So to list a product in any of the UK supermarket, you have to have certain qualified fishing method. Otherwise, the stores will not even list your products. A couple of years back, very recently, I would say Walmart has decided that it will list only MSC tuna in their stores. So those things have made that impact and all the commercial decisions and the industry is working towards a more sustainable one. There is a forum called the ISSF, which is an industry NGO format, a partnership that they are looking at where there's funds coming in from the industry to do much more research, much more control, to understand how things can be managed better. But the majority of the work is done by called the RFMO, which is the Regional Maritime Corporations. And these are done by the island nations and nations which have boundaries with the sea. So there is an RMFO for Western Pacific. There's an RMFO for Atlantic. There's an RMFO for Indian Ocean. So this is an organization of all the countries which are coastal to this uh, regional sea area. And they decide and they have a say in how to manage the fish in these waters. So the RMFO is essentially they control fishing rights to prevent overfishing. Is that it? Yeah, they control, basically, these are the groups together, they, they, yes, they manage it. So these countries have a say of managing that they will have so many vessels allowed or so many vessel VDS. So they have this vessel shipping days, number of days that they can fish in these waters. So they manage all that in these waters. You know, I'm going to ask you one more question, uh, on this because this is so interesting. Jaydeep and myself did a podcast last year, and one of the things that we talked about is the importance of partnerships, partnerships between organizations of different types, which is nonprofits and brands and supply chain companies. It seems to me that to me, the organization you talked about, which is a coalition of NGOs funded by the industry, is attempting to do something like that. It would be very interesting for us to understand a little bit more about that organization. Yes. So basically what has happened is that the industry understood that to, for it to survive, it needs a sustainable source of fishing, right? And also the people from the island nations, they need a sustainable source of fishing. So I would say in tuna, especially the commercial tuna, the partnership has really pretty strong and it's pretty deep. Again, these work to be done in a scientific manner needs a lot of funding and research money. So the industry has been supporting it, but they do not control ISSF. It's, it's a totally independently managed body with people from the scientific body who control this. 
They work very closely with all the research that they do with the RFMO, which is an intergovernment organization, something like a UN type, you know, working on those. And those are the people then determine on the government, government level how the fish resource will be managed in intersea. So that linkages really work very well. There are checks and balances, and it is not something that is being done by the industry funding something and they should work on their matter. So the ISSF basically focuses on the research and scientific work done by scientists and people who are very close to the sea. The decisions are again had by the island sea nations and the RFMOs of how to manage the risks that's there. Extremely interesting. And I think, you know, Jadip, you'll be smiling because we talked about this last year itself. You know, on a, I was smiling when you talked a little bit about how scientists, before they pronounce something, have to be completely certain. And what business school has taught all of us is that businesses work in a range of certainties, or I should say range of uncertainties. Now, my question to you is that in a 20-year cycle, you have already seen these El Nino cycles becoming more unpredictable or more intense El Ninos, like the one that we are probably going through now. What have you seen companies do? And I know you have been involved in a couple of experiments on your own as well. Basically, these cycles, the interactions are pretty short term. And, you know, we cannot plan also these El Ninos. Honestly, they say it will happen and then suddenly the weather pattern changes. There is an issue of unpredictability. Otherwise, it would be very easy to manage the commodity cycle and people who could predict it would get really, really rich. There is a lot of unpredictability, even in the prediction of El Nino's, which comes in. So you do try to catch fish or in the spring of the marine thing, store a certain amount of volume with you, expecting that things would manage. What happens in this climate change, if we can tell El Nino into it, is that the thermocline, which is the same temperature bandwidth of water, moves and spreads out. What we have noticed is the fish doesn't really vanish. They just move from the zones that we are catching to some others, which means we need to spend much more petrol and marine fuel to go after them, which means it moved out of the Z of certain countries whom we have paid license fees and we're not being able to catch in those zones, which means that because of the shipment, you know, we have less time. We have to go catch them and bring them to a port for transshipment. So those are the changes that affect and they impact on the cost. So the prices go up of these catches at a certain point of time because of this. Also, what happens is that the water temperature in different depths become changes. So the fish start swimming much below the depths which would allow the nets to catch. So the nets usually doesn't go down till the bottom of the sea. It would go like a couple of meters, like a few hundred few couple of meters down and then we pull up the whole net and catch whatever is floating on the top of the sea level and uh, the fish is usually swimming below these steps where these nets can can be uh, surrounding this fish and pulling it up so you miss those fish so those are the impact that these weather patterns are having on movement or migratory migration of fish from one place to the other impacting the cost and other things that would happen on climate change, we have done some studies. We have done some work on climate change. And if we are in the current shared socioeconomic pathways, 
that we have in terms of SSP1, SSP2. If you're working on SSP2 at the moment, there will be a 2.7 degree change in the water temperature. And if we go to SSP5, which is the worst case scenario, we are looking at a 4.4 degrees change in water temperature. That's how the modeling looks like in, by 2050. If that happens, what would really impact more than... Um, we really don't know how the fish size would change or how would things work. But what people, the scientists are predicting is that the fish would migrate to some other zones. And this would impact these island nations' economy significantly. So the impact of certain island nations' economies would go down by 20 to 30 percent of their earnings, which they get from licensing fees because they don't have any more fish in their economic zone. So I would say, and my feeling is with these climate change, Mother Earth would persist and things would happen and they would move around. What would really impact our human beings and human life, our livelihood and places where we stay? Some of these island nations, people would, would be really be affected by these changes in climate. What the size of the fish and the catching of the fish, we still don't know because, yes, there would be an impact. Some research has been done because these are very temperature-sensitive species and moving on this would have an impact on how they migrate and how they grow. But the more relevant and the more strong thought that scientists have is that they would migrate from the warm waters or the waters they are available today to another region, which would become much more difficult for us to catch and would impact also the island nations significantly. Well, for our audience, I'm going to introduce this word SSP that you mentioned. When Anup says SSP, he means shared socioeconomic pathways. And a 30-second explanation of how climate modeling is done is that the impact of a certain amount of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is a basically interplay of two factors. One is called the RSRCP, which is a representative concentration pathway, which is the actual concentration of, of greenhouse gas, and the SSP, which is the socioeconomic, so in the, which thinks like population, things like the wealth of the population, wealth of countries, and so on and so forth. So these two things interplay, which makes the climate change modeling very complex. But what Anna basically said is that modeling indicates that species will migrate away from these small island states, which he had mentioned earlier, to higher latitudes, and therefore the revenue that these countries make, remember that they don't have processing capability, that's what he said earlier, will reduce drastically. Arnab, you've told us a lot about tuna, and while there will be some negative effects, particularly on small island nations, you painted a fairly positive, optimistic story of change in the right direction of partnerships across the supply chain, of both the market responding to incentives to be more responsible, but also NGOs, governments playing their role. To what extent does what you've told us about tuna extend to other fish and marine life? I think all the fishing industry businesses are very well connected and they understand the interdependence. The main business that works, that I work with is tuna and the shrimp business. 
shrimp has become an aquaculture process. So those are farmed at the moment, most of them, though you get a lot of wild shrimps also available, but most of the shrimps and prawns are farmed at this point of time. And they have their own other problems for its growth and it's affecting on the coastal economy and the coastal people. There is also like certification, a version of it for shrimp and aquaculture businesses. So in all these aspects of marine business, there is a lot of partnership between the fishing community, uh, the industry, as well as the NGOs and other government body looking at uh, getting things done in a proper way. So if you were to just look ahead over the next few years, what do you see are some of the big things that you are expecting to see in this space and the impact on the economics? So the climate-wise, there is this, this is, there's definitely going to be seen weather patterns changing, you know, like my mother, who stays in Delhi, said not much of rain happening there. Spain had a drought, the olive oil and olive prices have really shot up because there's a shortage of that. So as you see, changes are happening in uh, nature and climate change is happening. So that would really take place. What would also affect is that on my tuna industry, I would like to see is more processing and more development happening in these island nations because these nations are dependent on the marine and their coastal fisheries businesses. Unfortunately, we pick the fish from there and bring it to the other countries and process it in a much more efficient way uh, in those countries, you know, because each person working in a factory takes care of not only his family, but a couple of more families, which is helping this family to serve uh, work in the factory. So those trickle-down effects should really be focused and seen how we can develop processing items in these island nations. So that's something I'm very concerned and I would really like to see happening in our country. Sustainability-wise, we are pretty good as an industry as of now. I hope we don't go into overfishing. The number of fishing boats are being controlled and managed by these RFMOs, so they are pretty strict about it. You At the moment, you cannot launch a new fishing boat. You have to take out one of the old boats and replace it. The concerns people have is, yes, you're taking out a boat, but you're getting a much more efficient and a much more faster boat. Uh, yes, those concerns are there, but at least we have made these efforts of not just growing the number of fishing boats that are there in these waters. So those impacts have happened, but there's much more work to take place. They are concerned about labor conditions, fishermen's rights and issues in fishing boats because these are in, you know, ICs and territories. We do not know how they are governed. That has been taken care of. Most of the fishing boats now have cameras where we can observe what's happening in these boats 24-7. So, yes, with technology and the new requirements from governments, from NGOs, as well as things from the industry, a lot of improvement are taking place. Are you seeing countries other than the small island developing countries get into the fishing industry? I know that you had done something in Dubai as well. Dubai basically was after covid the UAE government wanted to work on food security. And one of the things that they were looking at is to see if they could grow more seafood and they could be much more food secured on that aspect. Given the weather and given the 
proximity to sea in these on most of the areas of the gulf aquaculture has become a big project in so most of the countries in the middle east area and the gulf is now investing a lot in aquaculture some of these countries has got a decent weather so they can grow fish in cages and some of the other countries are making up pools in air conditioned atmosphere so they would have a big factory type setup where they would have pools of about 10 meter diameter and then they would grow a lot of fish in controlled atmosphere there have been some successful salmon production happening in these ponds inside a controlled atmosphere It needs a lot of energy but we have that in the middle east we'll into the lot of sun that they have we grow these fish and see how they work out so it's it's in a trial phase and things are being planned and worked out on aquaculture in these countries We've come to the end of the podcast, Arnab. You know, it's been incredible. I'm going to just again, you know, put down some thoughts which I think are important. One is the issue around. Again, I I do want to emphasize the fact that business works in various degrees of uncertainty, and climate scientists are loath to call out climate change impacts unless they're certain. And I think that creates a certain tension in the way business is responding to climate change. with the effects that you are already seeing i mean obviously you are seeing species migration both spatially that is you know across the latitudes as well as vertically which is going in the depth of the ocean you know what i was taking away was the fact that it is more costlier to fish in these conditions and therefore that some ways leads to food inflation to the extent that companies cannot absorb the cost themselves and that obviously impacts common person across the world climate change issue and the local pollution issue which Jadeep you brought up are both connected actually and it is again as i said very hurtling message that you are providing that the industry has come together and are trying to solve the problem and therefore i think you know if we can apply that same method to understanding and researching the potential impact of climate change and how the industry should react in a planned fashion including investments in the small island developing states i think just from my standpoint we often think about climate finance in the small island developing states to protect against say nature based solutions but just listening to you makes me think that we should actually invest in a uh, fish processing there because that helps increase incomes so you know we have to think about it in a holistic manner and that's what i'm taking away To end the podcast, I'm going to ask you just two more questions, and then Jadeep, I'm going to hand it over to you. As Jadeep and myself start probing this, do you have advice for us? Things that we should be asking? Yeah, I would really like us to do a bit more research. As you said, there are sustainable ways of getting energy, getting things into these island nations, and their economy would be affected most with the climate change happening. The migration of crops and migration of migrants from where they are now is something that i feel is more real uh, more challenging for us to manage and how do we secure the economies of these people where these crops and these marine products are currently based in that study and how we can help them to secure that would be a big work or big thought process that we should go through And if people have to get in touch with you, how should they? 
Well, coming from Cambridge, I still have my Cantab email. So it's arnab at cantab.net, A-R-N-A-B, at the rate C-A-N-T-A-B dot net. And Jadip, I'm going to leave the last and final words with you. Thank you, Sanjay. Arnab, once again, it's been a delight to catch up with you after some time and to hear about your career, how it's unfolded. Really exceptional range and depth of experience in the food sector. It's wonderful that you have all these insights from working in the industry that you can share with us. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jedi. Thank you, Sanjay. I really enjoyed uh, sharing some of my thoughts with you. Uh, thank you very much. If you like this podcast, do visit us on regainparadise.org, regainparadise.com. Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, and you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and YouTube.